When I was laid up with my bad back, the only positive that I could think of was that I had a lot of time to read and reflect. And one of the books that I devoured was Timothy Egan's A Pilgrimage to Eternity. A good friend had been to the public library to hear him do a reading, and he'd picked up a signed copy and brought it to me, and I loved every step of it. Egan describes himself as Catholic, but with a twist. He is lapsed, but listening, he says. He's listening because, well, you get the idea that he wants to capture the Catholic church of his childhood when everything was good and wholesome, but he's lapsed for a variety of reasons, including the fact that he is dealing with the church's checkered history from the more contemporary child sex scandal by priests to even how the church has dealt or not dealt with science. You know, the church locked up Galileo, called him a heretic for proclaiming that the sun was at the center of the system. And so Egan says, I'm lapsed, but I'm listening. When Carl and I dreamed up this series, Is God Still Speaking?, I'm pretty sure we never imagined a Sunday in which we would say, is God still speaking? Well, I don't know. I mean, probably not, but go in peace, enjoy your brunch. I mean, that just wasn't going to happen. It's kind of the default position of clergy, and my hunch is the default position of most churchgoers, that God is still speaking, but... How might God still be speaking and what God might still be saying, that's a little different. If you ask Isaiah, is God still speaking, he will offer a resounding yes. But he's a preacher and he's in the Bible. What would you expect, right? I think when I first read these verses about five, six weeks ago, I was really drawn to this passage because of that one little verse about the tree. Did you hear it? As the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. It probably was because I'd read that Pulitzer-winning novel about, well, trees, and because I always loved that saying about the two best times to plant a tree 100 years ago and today. So that's where my thinking was, but then I started to study. And before I even opened a book, I remembered, and maybe you know, that the one we call Isaiah was originally three books that got edited together at some point in time and that they were different. And I knew that, and if you're ever on Jeopardy, that might come up, I doubt it. But if you had an Old Testament exam in seminary, you'd have to know that. If the question were essay, however, you'd have to know a little bit more, and here's how it works. Chapters 1 through 39 are what's called First Isaiah, and they're written before the Assyrians are about to attack Israel. Chapters 40 to 55, Second Isaiah, are written after the Babylonians have attacked and destroyed the temple. And then the third one that we read from is written after the Persians have attacked the Babylonians and said, you know what, Israel, if you want to go back home, sure. Go back home, rebuild your temple. I knew all that, but then I read this article by this one scholar, and honestly, he pointed out something that had been there all along, but it just never really occurred to me or hit me the same way. And that is, 
that all of Isaiah, all three of them, are written in the face of war. That's the context for Isaiah. It's about war. Even this passage. This scholar notes that prior to the Assyrians, the common way that people fought battles is you lined up soldiers over here and soldiers over here and they met in the middle and maybe somebody survives and they're the winners. But the Assyrians, they changed tactics. They came up with the idea of sieging cities and citizens and burning their homes and burning their crops, demoralizing them. And if they didn't burn them, at least inhabiting them and taking their crops. And you hear that in the text. No more. The vision, of course, is that God says, no more will that happen. You'll have your own home and nobody will take it. You'll have your own crops and nobody will eat them. That's the vision. First, Isaiah, he's kind of pessimistic. Well, of course, the Assyrians are getting ready to attack. Second, Isaiah is a little bit more optimistic because, well, there's a little bit of hope maybe in the future. And third is generally considered pretty cynical. Well, I guess so. We're talking about war after war after war, and not across the pond, but in their land, their homes, their crops, their women and children. And they wouldn't know it at the time, but it wouldn't be long after this, that the Greeks would destroy, and then the Romans, on and on it goes. Egan knows this. He knows this, and his book, A Pilgrimage to Eternity, is the story of his walking an ancient route of pilgrimage from Canterbury in England down to Rome. And it, it doesn't escape his notice that both where he starts and where he ends, they're framed in violence. It's in Canterbury where the Archbishop Becket was hatched, hatched to death because of his speaking out against King Henry's affairs, King Henry II. And of course, in Rome, many a pope had blessed people going forth to fight the infidels in the name of God. He, he's aware of this. In fact, he says, on the journey down, almost in every little village and town, yes, there are markers to say this is the ancient pilgrimage route, but there's also memories of war at every place, Jews and Christians and Muslims killing each other. He points out shortly after the Reformation, Protestants and Catholics, of course, are killing each other. And the Treaty of London, they, they had this pact. All of the Christian nations of Europe, Christian nations, said we will never again go to war with other Christian nations. Never. This pact is forever. And it lasted two years. That was it. In the face of war, listen to the passage in Isaiah. I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth. And no more will you hear crying and distress and uncontrollable sobbing in the streets, women and children fleeing from troops. No more. And the mortality rate of infants and adults, it's going to improve. People will live long and prosperous lives. They won't be killed by armies. And they'll have their own homes and their own crops. They'll live long lives blessed by God. And even the wolf and the lamb, former enemies, will feed together. 
This is why some Jewish scribes took a little bit of liberty, and when they got to that verse about the tree, they said, like the tree of life, so shall the days of my people be. You know that reference to Eden. This is Eden restored. Well, almost. Isaiah is a realist. In the face of that cynicism, he kind of gives us two clues as to the awareness of the real life conditions. The first one is the verb he uses in the very first verse. I'm about to create new heavens and new earth. You hear it? It's future tense. But, well, actually that Hebrew word can be translated, hey, look at me. I'm creating new heavens and new earth, like right now. Well, well, which is it? Are you creating it or are you going to? And I think in a way that slipperiness of the Hebrew there fits with our reality. God's promise of peace, but it's not quite there, but it's a promise of peace. And the second clue, that little reference to the, the lamb and the wolf eating together, but did you notice there's still a serpent? Just like in Eden, there is still the chance of evil. Do you remember that classic Robin Williams movie, Good Morning Vietnam? I won't shout it at you like he did every morning. Such a powerful movie, and I don't know if you remember this scene, but it's near the end. The American troops are starting to withdraw to go back home. And the, the director does this brilliant thing. It's a kind of montage of one scene after another of horrific war. I mean, there is bombing of villages, and there are women and children bleeding and fleeing in the streets. But at the same moment, Robin Williams says, I'm sending out this song, and the song is Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. And you just can't quite, you know, it's like, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing, it just, I think that's the soundtrack of Isaiah 65. It's what you see and what you hear, it's the soundtrack of watching the news and yet another skirmish and another war. There is what you see and there is what you hear. I was reminded this week of another movie Remember the old Ken Burns Civil War that was on PBS? It's now on Netflix, nine long episodes. I watched number nine this week. So powerful. It's, of course, after the war, and there's kind of some reminiscing on what happens. But then there is this one scene. The narrator says that in 1913, on the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, the United States government sponsored a reunion, a three-day reunion. There would be music and food and speeches and all kinds of celebration, but the climax would be a reenactment. So the soldiers in blue and the soldiers in grays, they got on their uniform, they lined up, and the one came down and the other came down, but they fired no shots. Instead, they hugged and shook hands. If only. I think that's Isaiah's vision. If only. See, if you ask Isaiah, is God still speaking? Well, yeah, I've only said it three times. I mean, how many Isaiahs do I need to write? And in every one of those Isaiahs, there's a passage just like this. Forget the old. I'm creating something new. Three times God says, yeah, I'm still speaking. And I'm saying the same thing I've always said. Not war, 
but peace. In the book, Egan describes, as he gets into the north of France, coming into a city of about 50,000, the farmer's market is kind of packing up for the day, but he grabs some cheese and some fresh strawberries, and he's walking around the square, and knowing his history, he remembers. It was in this very spot where Bernard of Clairvaux, with the Pope's blessing, launched crusades. Go and kill the infidel in the name of God. God blesses you to go and kill. And he is just struck by the horror of that. But in that very same square that day are about 100 kids, black and brown and white, and they are a choir. And they are rehearsing for a concert. And before I could finish the paragraph, I wrote in the margin, I wonder what they were singing. You know, like, what song would be perfect in such a place? I mean, what would you pick? 